I believe these allegations were the result of greed and maliciousness. Um, you know, I, I, when you're dealing with children witnesses, uh, you have to remember that children can be very impressionable and they can be heavily influenced by their parents who they depend on for survival and for security and for love and affection and caring. This is Thomas Mesereau, Jackson's lead defense attorney from the 2005 trial, speaking generally about Michael Jackson and his accusers, which were part of his winning arguments in the case. And in my opinion, um, it was quite possible that a number of accusers were affected by those around them and may have actually believed some of the things they said when they said them uh, because of who influenced them and because of how and why they were influenced. But my firm conclusion is that Michael Jackson was a very unusual person, uh, a genius who heard and saw and felt things that we don't see or hear or feel, um, who in many ways danced to his own drummer, as all geniuses seem to do. Um, genius, by definition, means you're different. You're on a higher plane than other people in whatever area you're a genius in. And unfortunately, a lot of people looked at his eccentricity and his unique lifestyle and unique message and decided there must be something wrong with that person. And his physical appearance. And his physical appearance. And, and people are affected um, by how they perceive normality. And how they perceive normality is based on their upbringing, their life experiences, uh, good and bad. And unfortunately, he was, he was an easy target because of his vulnerability, his eccentricity, and his wealth, and his fame. He became a very easy target for false allegations, in my opinion. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 2, Something Cosmic. Omar. Hey, Bob. What's up? Omar Crook, co-producer of Telephone Stories. So I'm digging into this um, thing <coughs> with the Chandlers in 93. Oh, sorry, man. I've got a little cold. Yeah, it's going around. Oh, man. How was the wedding? How was New York? The wedding was great. Did it in San Clemente. It was super small because I was married before. Right. So you keep it low key. Yeah. Uh, New York was really cold for a honeymoon. I don't know why we decided to do that in the middle of winter, but now I understand why people do those ridiculous all-inclusive Bahamas trips that I look down on. Um, <laughs> but I got a friend that writes for Saturday Night Live, uh, my friend Gary, and he got us into the after party. We got to see Dear Evan Hansen and uh, Hamilton. No way. Yeah, it was Dude, like the, the whole thing. That is awesome. You know, we saw um, Hamilton here in Los Angeles, and it was just, it was the best show I've ever seen. It was also a great history lesson. Yeah, it was the best uh, best show I've ever seen. I mean, it was worth every penny of all of the honeymoon money that we spent <laughs> on the tickets to see it on Broadway. That's great. So the Chandlers. Yeah, so you were telling me that day after the Oprah interview that Jackson called uh, the Chandler family. Is that right? Correct. Um, the Oprah interview aired on February 10th, 93, and then on Friday, February 12th, Jordy, his mother, and his younger sister, Lily, 
Um, at the time, she was somewhere between age five and six. I'm not sure. It's depending on what source you read, but they spent their first weekend at Neverland. Right. And that's Neverland in the 90s. I mean, that's amazing. It's everything that Jackson said it would be when he was calling Jordy on the phone. June Chandler later described their visit to Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, saying, Michael Jackson wasn't the superstar. He was a regular person, and we couldn't believe how nice he was. June accompanied Jackson and the children as they played video games in the arcade, drove around in golf carts, and spent the late evening watching first-run movies in his private theater. In the 2005 criminal trial against Michael Jackson of alleged sexual abuse of another boy named Gavin Arvizo, June Chandler gave a sworn testimony that in 1993, on her family's first visit to Neverland, Jackson treated Jordy and Lily to an after-hour shopping spree at Toys R Us. Late that evening, according to author J. Randy Terraborelli's account of the events in his biography, Michael Jackson, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, the family enjoyed the amusement park rides at Neverland under a bright moon. Tara Borelli writes that while riding the Ferris wheel together, the operator stopped the rotation when they got to the top, an order Jackson had given to him earlier. Lily sat on June's lap with June, Jackson, and Jordy seated shoulder to shoulder. June surveyed the vastness of the Neverland property and the stars above. I don't know where there are more lights, she said in the sky or on the ground. Everyone was quiet for a moment, and Jackson looked on. Do you know how much time I spend up here alone, just sitting up here by myself? I have all of this, yet I have nothing. The things I really want in life are the things I don't have. Jordy put his arm around Michael. You have us now, he said. My new little family, Tara Borelli quotes Jackson responding to them. The only thing that matters in life is having someone who understands you, who trusts you, and who will be with you when you grow old, no matter what. Dude, there is something so just awful about that. It's like he's seducing the family or something. It's just terrible. Or Michael Jackson's literally looking for a family to belong with. He doesn't even talk to his own family, really. Yeah. I mean, not that I, um, not that I want to know, but do, do you think Jackson and Jordy slept together on that trip, or, or what? According to June's testimony at the trial, they did not, and they didn't the next weekend either. They went back the next weekend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jackson showed up at June's house with his stretch limo the following Saturday to take her and the kids back to Neverland. And when the family got in the car, Jordy noticed another boy there with big eyes and dark hair, just like him, Brett Barnes. Oh, okay. So this is one of the, like, in quotes, traveling companions of Michael's. The um, Was he the one that talked to Jordy on the phone or something? Yeah, he was the one that talked to him on the phone when Jackson was on the dangerous tour. Right. According to reporter Diane Diamond's account of the events in her book, Be Careful Who You Love, Brett Barnes wrote on Jackson's lap. Diamond writes that Jordy would later tell his father that he felt uncomfortable with Jackson and Barnes's physical affections on the drive up, but perhaps at the time, he was just feeling jealous. When they arrived at the ranch, Diamond writes that Jackson's driver, Gary Hearn, unloaded Brett Barnes's bags and security guards took them to Jackson's room. The Chandler bags were taken to the guest house. In June Chandler's testimony at the 2005 criminal trial, 
She spoke about how, on a subsequent visit, Jordy begged her to be allowed to stay in Jackson's bedroom, but June said no. At the time, she testified, Brett Barnes and two other boys around the same age, visiting from New Jersey, Eddie and Frankie Cassio, were also at Neverland. Another boy was visiting too, she said, child actor Macaulay Culkin. In the ensuing weeks, June testified that she, Lily, and Jordy accompanied Jackson to Disneyland in Anaheim and visited what he called his hideout apartment in Century City. Then they began to travel together when he came back, you know, during rest periods in between the Dangerous Tour. Um, Jackson actually started taking the boy and his mother, who was his custodian parent, um, all over. So where else did they go? They stayed in Michael Jackson's three-bedroom suite in the Mirage Hotel. One room was for Jackson, one bedroom for June and Lily, and another for Jordy. According to June Chandler, in her testimony, her son and Michael Jackson first slept together in the same bed during this trip. Reporter Diane Diamond. They watched one night in Michael Jackson's hotel room suite. Again, Jordy and his mother had other their own rooms. They watched The Exorcist together. And it was scary for a kid, you know, nine, ten years old. Jordy Chandler was frightened from watching the movie. According to his sworn declaration on his lawyer's pleading paper, which was later published on the smokinggun.com website, Jackson offered for Jordy to sleep in his bed that night. Jordy accepted. The following morning, according to June Chandler's testimony, she noticed that Jordy's bed was empty and confronted him about it. Jordy admitted he slept in Jackson's bed and told her that it was no big deal. After an argument about the matter, she said she made her son promise he wouldn't do it again. But the next night, June testified, Jackson entered her bedroom in hysterics, having heard that she was uncomfortable with her son sleeping in his bed. During the argument, she said Jackson was in tears. You don't trust me, he said. We're a family. Why are you doing this? Why are you not allowing Jordy to be with me? June testified that she finally relented and said that Jordy could sleep wherever he wanted moving forward. The following day, Jackson gave June Chandler a $12,000 Cartier bracelet. A token, Jackson told her, explaining the gift, according to Tara Borelli's account. It's nothing, Jackson said. I just love you. According to both Jordy Chandler's declaration and June Chandler's testimony, following the argument in Las Vegas, Jordy and Jackson began spending their nights together in the same bed. They were traveling together. Uh, his mother was allowing uh, Michael to sleep over at their home in West Los Angeles in the same bed. Former Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss discussing the evidence she had accumulated in the 1993 criminal investigation of Jackson. I would say they were developing a very close friendship, which was uh, a very curious friendship between an adult and a child. That spring, while in Disney World in Orlando, Florida, June Chandler began to notice changes in her son. According to her testimony, 
She said that Jordy, who was normally very sweet and extremely close with his mother, became withdrawn and smart-alecky. He also began dressing like Michael Jackson. Jordy and Jackson were spending more time together, too. The Los Angeles Times later reported that Jordy's attorney, Larry Feldman, deposed Jackson's driver, Gary Hearn. Hearn, who testified, said that Jackson essentially moved into June Chandler's Santa Monica house between the middle of April and the end of May. All right, and just to clarify, who all lived there exactly? June, her daughter Lily, Jordy, and now Michael Jackson. Gary Hearn testified that he picked up Jackson after Jordy left for school and dropped him off as soon as Jordy got home from school. And were they all sleeping in the same bed? Well, not all of them, but Jackson and Jordy were, according to court testimony and other sources, they were sleeping in the same bed every night. Jesus. And what was Evan Chandler doing uh, around this time? Well, according to June's interview with Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, that September, June had complained to Jackson about the men in her life, how she was separated from the overworked David Schwartz at Renarec, and how Evan was just busy at his dental office and writing a new screenplay. <laughs> I totally forgot. He was He's a screenwriter and a dentist. Um, <laughs> can we talk about um, Evan Chandler? I mean, what? who is this guy? Evan Robert Charmatz was born in 1944 in the Bronx. He and his brother Raymond formed a band called The Fugitives, and in 1966, they had a song called Your Girl's a Woman, which broke into the top 40. Evan spent four years in college and another four in dental school. Raymond Chandler writes that while finishing up dental school, Evan met June Wong, an aspiring model at NYU's free clinic. It's unfortunate, but there is little, if anything, available as a resource on June Chandler's life besides reductive descriptions of her as beautiful or stunning. Everything about June, sadly, comes through the lenses of the men in her life. According to Raymond Chandler's account, Evan started his practice in New York and then moved to West Palm Beach. In 1977, he was licensed by the California Dental Board. On January 11, 1980, June and Evan had a son. Jordan Chandler. Raymond Chandler writes that Evan, quote, worked the gamut of high-volume chain store dentistry to upscale private practice, end quote. From 1985 to when the events of 1993 began, he had established a solid Beverly Hills clientele. In 1985, June and Evan divorced. She married the uh, Renarec guy, David Schwartz. Renarek Schwartz, correct. They were married in 1985, and they had a daughter, Lily, together. Uh, Evan remarried, too, in, in his case, to a French law student named Nathalie, or Natalie, depending on which source you read of the spelling of her name. Um, she later became an attorney herself. They had two kids together, and despite the divorce between uh, June and Evan, things were pretty amicable. They raised their children together in separate homes. It was during this time, too, that Evan's practice took off and he began to treat celebrity clients. He had a, a, a very uh, impressive office with a partner. Reporter Diane Diamond. And he also fancied himself as a screenwriter. You know, everybody in Hollywood's got a screen, right? They've got a play to sell or they've got a project they're working on to get greenlit. Or... And Evan Chandler was no um, exception. 
In fact, he and his son Jordy worked on some screenplays together. According to the LA Times, Evan Chandler relayed a pitch that Jordy had made to him to one of his screenwriting patients, J.D. Shapiro. The article quotes Mel Brooks saying, Evan Chandler's son turned to his father and said, you know, Dad, you know what would be a great thing? A spoof of Robin Hood. No, I mean, these are hard to get on. Let's face it, you gotta be a man to wear tights. We're men, we're men in tights. We roam around the forest looking for heights. We're men, we're men in tights. Evan Chandler was in a Writers Guild arbitration over screenwriting credit for Robin Hood Men in Tights. Brooks wanted to give Evan and Jordy a story credit, and he and Shapiro the screenplay credit. According to June's testimony at the 2005 trial, Evan had yet to pay Jordy the $5,000 he promised him for coming up with the initial idea. So he's not exactly the best guy in the whole wide world. <laughs> he's a questionable guy. There are other sources, including an article in GQ following the scandal that reported about documents that showed Evan also owed June $68,000 in child support payments. Um, you know, uh, Evan Chandler, he had uh, interactions with Carrie Fisher, where, um, as she writes in her books, uh, she would get unnecessary dental procedures in exchange for uh, morphine. Writer Ren Graves revisited the scandals in an extensive piece for the music publication Consequence of Sound. Um, she says that he would he would come to her and uh, he would just go on and on about how his boy was friends with Michael Jackson. And, and um, she said the, the stories were starting to outlast the drugs. <laughs> she was getting sick of it. Um, and at sometimes he felt really proud about it. You know, my son is rubbing shoulders with the biggest superstar in the world. And sometimes he felt sort of conflicted or confused about it, you know. Why a 34-year-old megastar was hanging out with his 13-year-old son may have been troubling to Evan Chandler, who relayed, according to his brother Raymond, in his self-published account of the events, All That Glitters, that he was yet unsure about the nature of Jackson and Jordy's relationship. These are some of the issues brought up, too, in a document purported to be Evan Chandler's diary, according to Diane Diamond. All right, so I have some questions about this diary. Um, does it have any dates? Does it reference suspicions? Um, because it kind of sounds like it was written after the fact to kind of like create a record. And if so, that is not a diary. Um, and where and when was it published and by whom? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Portions of it appeared in Diamond's book, Be Careful Who You Love. And I asked her how she received it. Yes, I, I I was lucky enough to get a source who gave me Evan Chandler's personal diary, copy of it, and I validated that it was his handwriting, and it gave me a chronology of events according to him, and it gave me some dialogue, actual in quote dialogue from his own diary but of course you can't just go with that you have to confirm it in other ways and i did my best to do that it was easy to um to do that in some instances and almost impossible in other instances but it gave you a real insight into what he was thinking the way things developed 
Okay, I get that, but I think, like, for the purposes of radio, we should just call it, like, a log or something? Okay, so from Evan Chandler's log, as read by actor Wyatt Gray, not to be confused with the writer, Ren Graves. May 7th or 8th, 1993. I went to the house to see Geordie, but they were in such a hurry we didn't have time to talk. June showed me the $7,000 first-class tickets Michael had sent over. I was happy for her. A man was finally treating her good. Jordy looked great and acted the same as always. I had no suspicions as they drove away. I remember thinking how great it would be if June divorced Dave and married Michael. She would finally have a great life with someone who treated her with respect. And so that's what happened, right? Exactly. Michael married June, he raised her children, he stopped getting plastic surgery, and he lived a normal life as a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we all wish, right? We all wish. So in real life, though, Evan hasn't met Jackson yet, who soon took June, Jordy, and Lily to Monaco for the World Music Awards. On May 12, 1993, the Chandlers sat in the front row at the televised ceremony right next to Prince Albert. In the footage, Jordy is dressed in a fedora and leather jacket, bouncing up and down on Jackson's lap. After the scandal broke that fall, reporter Piers Morgan described to Hard Copy's competitor a current affair, witnessing the event in person. Uh, I was sitting literally five rows away from Jackson, who was right in the front next to Prince Albert. And two hours he sat with that boy on his knee. Now this is not a, a very, very young boy, he's not a three-year-old, this is a 13-year-old boy, uh, an almost fully developed teenage boy, uh, sitting on his knee, Jackson was holding him like this, uh, his hands were on his legs, it, almost like they were having a relationship. According to his testimony at the 2005 criminal trial, Bob Jones, Jackson's PR guru, recalled confronting Jackson during a commercial break. He said he, quote, tried to get those people off his lap. Jones gave a variation of the event in a 2007 documentary called Michael Jackson, What Really Happened, directed and hosted by investigative reporter Jacques Peretti, which aired on Channel 4 in the UK. I said stop. This is wrong. At the World Music Awards, the first time we went there and got eight awards, and he sat next to Prince Albert. But, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can uh, take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. But what was he saying by doing that? What was he saying to the world? I can do what I want to. In Jordy Chandler's declaration, he states that it was during the Monaco trip that things got out of hand between him and Jackson. He goes on to say that they both had colds, so they sequestered themselves in Jackson's hotel room the following day. At the 2005 criminal trial, June Chandler said that she and her daughter Lily used Jackson's credit card to go shopping that day. In his sworn declaration, Jordy states that while alone in Jackson's hotel room, the two of them took a bath together. It was, he said, the first time they had seen each other naked. According to Jordy, Jackson named certain of his other friends who would masturbate in front of him. Then, Jordy said, Jackson proceeded to masturbate in front of him. Jordy declared that after Jackson was finished, he told Jordy that when he was ready, he would help him masturbate too. While in bed that night, 
According to Jordy Chandler's sworn declaration, Jackson put his hands underneath Jordy's underpants and masturbated him to climax. After that, Jordy said, Michael Jackson masturbated me many times with both his hand and with his mouth. Telephone Stories co-producer, Omar Crook. Uh, God. So if any of that, let's say that's true, right? What does, the, what does his family know at this point? It's not clear from the court records and any of the other sources I've seen what perhaps, if anything, June Chandler knew. And Evan, if you recall, at this point was thinking that perhaps Jackson was interested in his ex-wife. Right. Um, So do you even know if Evan Chandler ever saw his son bouncing on Michael Jackson's lap on TV? No, but the paparazzi snapped a photo of Michael Jackson with the Chandlers, which appeared in the National Enquirer under the headline, Michael Jackson's Secret Family, a Millionaire's Wife and Her Two Kids. And it featured photos of them in Europe on their trip. And then this inset photo of David Schwartz, the millionaire in question, in front of Renarak. According to Raymond Chandler's catalog of the events, the Enquirer story caused upset from David Schwartz and Evan toward June Chandler. David Schwartz thought the story was ruining his business, and Evan Chandler worried it might lead Jordy to becoming a target for jealous fans or kidnappers. According to June Chandler's testimony, upon returning from Monaco, Jackson continued to sleep over in Jordy's room. Ren Graves, again. Um, Evan Chandler became much more suspicious, some said jealous, and um, escalated his, uh, his inquiries into their relationship. Reporter Diane Diamond. When Evan realized that Jordy and Michael Jackson were more than just pals, they were in fact sleeping in the same bed together, he asked Carrie Fisher about that, if she knew anything about that. So why did he ask Princess Leia? Great question. I mean, why not ask Luke Skywalker or Han Solo what they knew about it? (laughs) Exactly. No, really, I can only guess it's because she was a patient of his and Evan probably knew that she knew people who knew Jackson. Ah, I see. Okay. Actress Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia in Star Wars, wrote in her 2011 memoir, Shockaholic, published by Simon & Schuster, that Evan Chandler told her how much his son liked Michael Jackson. And more importantly, she wrote, how much Michael Jackson liked his son. She goes on, and the most disturbing thing I remember him saying was, you know, my son is very good looking. Fisher writes that it was grotesque. This man was letting me know that he had a valuable thing that he assumed Michael Jackson wanted, and that happened to be his son. According to Evan Chandler's log, which was published in Diane Diamond's book, Be Careful Who You Love, he doesn't mention bragging to Carrie Fisher at all. Rather, he describes himself expressing concern over whether Michael Jackson was gay and worried to Fisher about what the singer might want from his son. From his entry dated April 16, 1993, Evan Chandler wrote that while giving her a ride home, he asked Carrie Fisher what she thought about Jordy's developing relationship with Jackson. Since Fisher was a close friend of Arnie Klein, Jackson's dermatologist, Chandler writes that she called Klein from his car and explained Chandler's suspicions to him. According to Chandler's log, Klein said he had nothing to worry about. So when does Evan first meet Michael Jackson? There's varying accounts of the event, but it basically entails Evan showing up unannounced with his other son, Nikki, to see Jordy at June's house in Santa Monica. 
in Raymond Chandler's chronology, he described Evan entering Jordy's room to see the boy on the floor surrounded by Nintendo games, VHS tapes, CDs. And he said, uh, you know, where'd you get all this stuff, Jordy, or something to that effect. And just then Michael Jackson appeared stepping out of the corner in full makeup and red lipstick. And he said, yeah, I'm going to try to not do a Michael Jackson impression. <laughs> he said, hello, Mr. Chandler. Well, yeah, so he said, hello, Mr. Chandler, and he offered a limp handshake. Jesus Christ, it's like meeting a vampire or something. Right, but Evan and Jackson, they hit it off, and within minutes, they began playing. You know, it's that power that Jackson had to just make adults want to be kids. And according to June Chandler's testimony from the 2005 trial, Evan, his son Nikki, and Jordy, they all had a squirt gun fight. So they're all friends now. Well, not necessarily, but Jackson did invite Evan to come over to his hideout apartment, and he and Nikki visited there a few days later. On May 21st, according to Raymond Chandler's account, Evan Chandler took Jordy over to Jackson's Century City condo, where Evan saw a giant, new computer that Jackson had purchased so that Jordy could do his homework there after school. Writing in his log, which appears in Diane Diamond's account, Evan Chandler says he asked Jackson, What exactly is the nature of your relationship? Actor Wyatt Gray, reading as Evan Chandler. Michael said, It's cosmic. I don't understand it myself. I just know we were meant to be together. I asked him, Well, what if someday you decide you don't want to be with him anymore? You'd be really hurt. Michael assured me, I always want to be with Jordy. I could never hurt him. According to Raymond Chandler's account, Jackson then asked Evan if he could help persuade June to allow Jordy to accompany him on the second leg of the dangerous tour across Asia. It would allow Jordy the opportunity to see the world and meet royalty, he said. The way Raymond Chandler relates this story in his book is that Evan believed June wanted Jordy to go on tour so that she could tag along but Jackson didn't want her to come with. According to the book, after Jackson agreed to hire a tutor, June made arrangements with Jordy's private school to supply his tutor with the books and assignments needed. It doesn't appear, though, that June told Evan about her plans, just that Evan surmised her motives. Raymond Chandler writes that Jackson gave Evan a $20,000 ruby necklace to deliver to June in a brown paper bag. So do you think Jackson was using Evan to convince June to stay behind? It could seem that way. Jackson began to kind of switch teams here, going from crashing at June's house and buying her gifts to kind of buttering up Evan. As she testified in the 2005 trial, Jackson then began to sleep over at Evan's house. What? Yeah. And from Raymond Chandler's accounts, they had these long nights together watching movies and Evan told Jackson about his dreams making it in the movie business. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. Michael may have said something to the child about, you know, I can help your dad, I can help the two of you with this, or uh, and may have uh, broached that subject with the father. Actor Wyatt Gray, reading from Evan Chandler's log of the events. He told me he could tell I was a talented writer by the ideas I had. They were artistic yet commercial. But during these bonding sessions, according to Raymond Chandler's account, Jackson started to press the issue of taking Jordy with him, 
alone on tour. I told Michael I liked him very much, and he was welcome into our family, but he couldn't take Jordy out of it, and if he wanted to live with Jordy, we could build a wing onto the house so he could have his own room. Without hesitation, he said, built it. I was testing Michael's feelings for Jordy, but I didn't really mean it. So later on, I told him we couldn't add onto the house because of zoning problems. So it's like Evan was kind of like manipulating Jackson a bit to get some leverage in the, like in the movie business, and perhaps Jackson is sort of using him as a tool? Yeah, one could say that, because on Memorial Day, according to reporter Diane Diamond's version of Evan Chandler's log, Jackson called him about June. Michael told me he didn't want to hurt my feelings, but he really liked me and he thought there was something I should know. He told me June hates me, thinks I'm selfish, and I don't really love Jordy. I told Michael it couldn't be true. I knew June 22 years. She's my family. He replied, I knew you'd be hurt. I'm sorry I told you. I broke down and started crying. I felt like I had been stabbed in the back by my most trusted and oldest friend. Michael said, Please don't cry. Please, I love you. Jordy loves you too. I really do. At that moment, I stopped trusting June. I felt like she was my enemy. And Jackson was still staying at Evan's house? Best I can tell, he was still sleeping over at Evan's house in Jordy's room. Some accounts I've read say there was a pullout bed that he slept on, some say bunk beds, but there came a night. There, there came a, a, a night. Reporter Diane Diamond. Where Evan Chandler stuck his head in his son's door to say goodnight, and there in the bottom bunk was his son sleeping being spooned by Michael Jackson, and Jackson had his hand on Jordy's crotch. And I think that was sort of a, a turning point for Evan Chandler. It was like, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening? Diamond wrote about this in her book, Be Careful Who You Love. And, uh, you know, if it had been any other parent, I dare say they would have screamed, yelled, said, hey, wake up, get your hand off my son's crotch and get out of here, or I'm calling the cops. But Evan Chandler didn't do that. and. I don't know if he was besotted by the celebrity or he didn't want to, you know, fracture his relationship with his son because his son was so fond of Michael. I don't know why. According to Evan Chandler's log published in Diamond's book, it was this point where Evan began to worry that his son would be, well... I was very disturbed. I thought Jordy might be gay. Actor Wyatt Gray, again, reading as Evan Chandler. I decided to leave them alone and talk to them about it another time when I was calmer, rather than risk a highly charged emotional fight and possibly lose my son. The next morning, Nikki came into my bedroom and woke up Natalie and me and asked, Evan's other son, Nikki, age five, is it okay for two boys to get married? When we asked him why he asked that question, he didn't reply. I told June, I'm scared that if Jordy keeps on seeing Michael, he may end up gay. She said, so what's the big deal? I mean, man, that, that is pretty offensive. Like he's associating um, being a pedophile with being gay. Yeah, or associating like child abuse with being gay, like even victims of child abuse being like turning out gay. You know, oh. but remember, this is 1993 and a lot of people completely associated homosexuals with pedophiles. I mean, bear in mind, too, there's 
just a tremendous amount of misconceptions with these kind of issues, even even today. Um, but we'll address that down the road. But for now, let's stay on track best we can. According to Tara Borelli's account, over the next few weeks, in late May of 1993, Evan began to pester both Jordy and Michael Jackson about what was going on with their relationship. He writes that both of them denied anything was going on other than a friendship, and soon, Jackson stopped returning Evan's phone calls. More discord happened when Jordy wanted to skip his 7th grade graduation party to spend time with Jackson. June told her son that he'd have to take that up with his father, to which Evan later responded to his son, Tara Borelli writes, Over my dead body, you cannot spend all your time with Michael Jackson. I will not allow it. Enough is enough. Well, you can't stop me, Jordy reportedly told his father. I'll do what I want to do. While June, Lily, and Jordy were in New York for June's brother's wedding, Jordy initially refused to call Evan to wish him Happy Father's Day, according to June's testimony at the 2005 trial. Following the wedding, Jackson showed up unexpectedly. June went on to say that her brother became upset that Jordy was now spending time with Jackson instead of his side of the family. This information got back to Jackson, who later got into an argument with Jordy. June returned to the hotel room to find two lamps had been broken. According to her testimony, when she asked her daughter Lily about the damage, the girl told her that Jackson had just been demonstrating karate kicks to the kids. June testified that while riding in Jackson's limo, she called into her answering machine and heard what she called a threatening and ominous voice message from Evan. According to Vanity Fair's 1994 article by Maureen Orth, Burt Fields said the message had come in early July of 1993. Raymond Chandler writes in his book that Evan was frustrated with Jackson's presence in his family's life and wanted to meet to talk it out. June, make sure you play this message for Michael and Jordy, Evan said, according to his brother's account. All three of you are responsible for what is going on. No one party is neutral. Since Jordy has repeatedly refused to answer my phone calls, this will be my last voluntary attempt to communicate. After giving details of when he wanted to meet at June's house to discuss matters, Evan said, take my word for it. There is nothing else any of you can do that is more important than being at this meeting. Well, I remember things a little bit uh, differently uh, with regard to the relationship between uh, the father and, uh, and the child at that time and the mother. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. Uh, the way I remember it is that there was uh, some friction between the mother and the father uh, and part of it was uh, a little bit of jealousy because the child was spending so much time with Michael Jackson and their relationship had been suffering. During this time, Evan Chandler began to call and confide in Jordy's stepdad, David Schwartz, more and more. In a later, separate personal injury lawsuit, David Schwartz v. Evan Chandler, Transcripts of their phone calls were submitted as evidence in the case. During the conversations, Evan lamented to Schwartz about his weeks of not talking to Jordy and how he just wanted to know what was going on. Why was Michael Jackson driving a wedge between his family? 
Do you think he's fucking him? David Schwartz asked. I don't know. I have no idea, said Evan. When Dave pressed Evan to tell him what then he suspected was happening, Evan said he didn't know. He just wanted to sit down with everyone, June, Jordy, Michael Jackson, and talk things out. Michael can come with all his bodyguards and his lawyer if he wants to. I don't really care, as long as everything gets aired out, Evan said, according to the transcript. That's it. And if I walk away dissatisfied, then I'll take it to the next step. So did the meeting actually happen? I mean, did Michael Jackson go to this? No, no. According to Vanity Fair, Burt Fields said that he heard in early July that Jordy's dad was angry and demanded a meeting with Michael Jackson, but Fields stopped him from going. It's unclear exactly why Evan even wanted the meeting in the first place. But as the LA Times pointed out um, regarding the secretly recorded phone calls between Schwartz and Evan, at no point did the boy's natural father spell out what he might want from Jackson or detail any allegations against Jackson. All right. Well, at least Evan's got an attorney now. Evan had retained this attorney, Barry K. Rothman. Uh, the guy's one of his dental clients, and he's this mean, nasty bulldog of an attorney. Oh, dude. I mean, let's not slander this guy, right? Well, I can't because he's dead. And in Evan's own words, he called the guy the nastiest son of a bitch I could find and somebody who could, quote, destroy everybody in sight in any devious, nasty, cruel way he can do it. And I've given him full authority to do that. Okay. End quote. Okay. So things are like escalating. On July 7th, 1993, according to Diane Diamond's account, Evan Chandler's attorney, Barry Rothman, drafted up a document called Stipulation, Ray, Child Care, Custody, and Control that would, among other things, give temporary custody of Jordy to Evan for one week. About a week after June played Evan's angry voicemail for Jackson, he put her in touch with his attorney, Burt Fields. My name is Burt Fields, and I'm a lawyer. According to June's testimony at the 2005 trial, she met with Fields and his investigator to talk about the problem with Evan. June said that she was also encouraged by Jackson himself to sign the new stipulation of custody from Evan. Jackson was frantic, she testified, and wanted her to avoid any lawsuits where he could be implicated. This could be, in part, because of what was in the new custody stipulation. Okay, and what, so what was, what was in this um, custody stipulation? I don't have the original document, but from all the sources I've been able to find, it prohibited June from taking Jordy outside of Los Angeles County. It, you know, a provision that would prohibit Jordy from visiting Neverland Ranch, as that was in Santa Barbara County. And it would keep Jordy from, obviously, going on the international tour with Michael Jackson. In other published accounts, Jackson lawyer Burt Fields said that during this time, he was acting merely as a, quote, intermediary in the custody dispute and simply trying to keep things running smoothly between Evan and June Chandler. The proposed custody arrangement, drawn up by Evan's attorney, Barry Rothman, also called for Jordy to undergo psychiatric testing to determine how Jackson's influence affected the boy, according to Diane Diamond's book. It also accused June Chandler of nurturing the relationship because, quote, she, June, receives expensive gifts, cash, and vacations from Jackson. 
Okay, so did she, I mean, did she sign it? She signed it. Later, Jackson's private investigator, employed by Burt Fields, met with Jordy and June in Jackson's Century City condo, the hideout, according to June's testimony in the 2005 criminal trial. Okay, and real quick, who was this private investigator? His name is Anthony Pelicano. I know that name. Isn't he the one that went to prison for, um, like, bombs or, like, tapping, wiretapping people or something? Yeah, wiretapping and bombs. I mean, he said he was just holding on to the bombs for a friend. Um, trust me, we'll get to Anthony Pelicano, but we just, we got to stay focused here. Okay, so... Uh, so June brings Jordy to meet with Anthony Pelicano. Yes. According to her testimony, she was upstairs with David Schwartz while Jackson and the PI were downstairs questioning Jordy Chandler. Over a period of about 45 minutes, Pelicano interviewed Jordy about his relationship with Jackson and if anything sexual had happened between them. All right. So the kid tells Jackson's private investigator... Um, possibly in front of Michael Jackson at Jackson's apartment that nothing happened. Is that right? Because, yeah, because maybe nothing did. But, I mean, this is where we get a little mixed up because part of me goes, well, the kid told the guy the truth, and another part of me looks at this like he's this big, scary PI in the house of the guy with him there, and it's, like, fucking easy to say, tell the truth one way or another, right? Because I'm 35 and I'm a waiter and this is 25 years ago and it's the goddamn kid mm-hmm. in the most extraordinary of circumstances mm-hmm. imaginable. I mean, wh- what do you hold up to this? Like what precedent of your experience, you know, to yeah. say what you would do? Yeah, I mean, it's easy for me to say, I'm right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm a dummy, but... I kind of, you know, the the smoke and mirrors analogy means to mislead, right? But I'm kind of looking at, like, all these forces, these primary forces in this kid's life. His parents, you know, he's a product of divorce in multiple households. I, I, I don't know what that's like. Well, yeah, I I totally know what that's like. I, 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 I get that. I mean, you know, I, you're changing alliances, you're changing faces, and like putting on masks just to survive. And at his age, I mean, I know that age at 13 ish, when you're becoming aware of your, like your parents' frailties and, and their faults. And, you know, you have to, yeah, you have to create alliances to survive really. Right. And this other thing happens, this other relationship, whatever it is, comes in with the most famous and powerful person in the world who at some point, over this crazy spring and summer has replaced all the absentee father figures in your life and relatives and your mother, you know, it's fucking Michael Jackson, right, you know, right, it's Michael right. Jackson. Right. And so, it's, so he's sitting there, this other guy, this, this, um, Pelicano who works for Jackson's lawyer and he's asking, you know, did anything happen? I mean, what do you say? Of course not. Of course not or whatever way to say it, you know, even if it did happen, no, nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's already spinning totally out of control. And dude, I know this feeling as a kid, you don't want anything to be your fault and uh, you really don't want to hurt anybody. And, but you've got to survive. And even if it's true, 
you you just want to make it stop yeah i mean i'm all you know i'm i'm feeling empathy for his mom too like yes it it was foolish and either way to just let stuff go on um even as naive as she might have been uh she's in the middle of the swirl all of a sudden like this maelstrom and as far as she knew here her husband is just being jealous and he's i mean he's out of the picture anyway yeah and evan chandler knows this i mean in his phone calls to david schwartz he worried that if all of this goes to court at some point over the custody he's going to be viewed as a negligent absentee father by a judge no question you know every Everyone can draw his or her own conclusion about that. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. Uh, I certainly found it odd uh, that a mother would let an adult man uh, sleep in the same bed with her 13 or 14 year old child uh, for you know many days in a row. I just thought that was a very strange thing. And that was very problematic. In, in the case as we went on, uh, because uh, I'm sure that people would look at that behavior on the part of the mother and maybe want her prosecuted. According to Evan's brother, Raymond Chandler, in his self-published account, David Schwartz had, by now, also inserted himself as a liaison about the custody. During a day of heated exchanges about Evan's desire for a sit-down, Schwartz and Evan ended up in a scuffle outside of Evan's house. Despite the chaos, two days later, on July 11, 1993, Jordan stayed with Evan over a one-week visitation. At the time, it seemed, Evan had every intention of returning his son to June. But during Jordy's visit, Evan's lawyer, Barry Rothman, decided it was time to seek a professional to discuss the matter of Jordy and Jackson's relationship. In California, it is mandatory for certain professionals to report suspected child abuse. So Evan and Rothman came up with a solution to offer merely hypotheticals to a professional. Evan, according to Raymond Chandler's book, wasn't looking for an ally to confirm any suspicions, but rather someone who would tell him the truth. So he withheld any suggestion of sex, only stating the facts as he knew them to Dr. Mathis Abrams, a Beverly Hills psychiatrist who came highly recommended by Barry Rothman. According to Evan Chandler's log, on July 14, 1993, Dr. Abrams listened carefully as Evan told the story and without telling the doctor his name, his child's name, or the name of the celebrity he suspected to avoid mandatory reporting, Evan told him the hypothetical situation. Actor Wyatt Gray reading from Chandler's log. Dr. Abrams' opinion was that a 34-year-old man consistently sleeping in the same bed with a 13-year-old boy when other beds were available constitutes lewd and lascivious conduct. He suggested that I bring my son in for an interview, not anonymously. All right, so this wasn't exactly an anonymous hypothetical. Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, did he tell the doctor it was his own son? Well, that's the way he recorded it in the log in Diane Diamond's book. It goes on. I told him I couldn't do that because my son still loved the celebrity. And if I kept him from seeing the celebrity or the celebrity were harmed in any way because of me, then I would lose my son. 
Dr. Abrams' response was, You already lost him. Dr. Abrams' conclusions turned my suspicions into belief. I should clarify here, too, that in Raymond Chandler's account, Abrams does not conclude that, quote, sleeping in the same bed constitutes lewd and lascivious conduct, end quote. Raymond Chandler writes that when Abrams referred to the hypothetical conduct, he gave an example from the penal code. He said, quote, the events as presented above provide the basis for the conclusion that reasonable suspicion would exist that sexual abuse may have occurred, end quote. In Diane Diamond's reconstruction, Evan left the session with Dr. Abrams racked with indecision and uncertain about how to proceed. That night, Raymond Chandler wrote, Evan went into Jordy's room and reminded him that he still had one last baby tooth that needed extraction. Because Jordy had been gone with Jackson so much, the procedure had been put off for months. Reporter Diane Diamond. The turning point came when Jordy had to have a tooth extracted at one point. And his dad's a dentist. So his father brought him to the office, had an anesthesiologist give him a little bit of something to put him in a, a, a wakeful sleep, they call it. And he pulled the tooth. Jordy hated needles, and much to Evan's protest, begged his father to use anesthesia, according to Raymond Chandler's account. Evan, not skilled himself using it on children, relented, and had another doctor administer the anesthesia. All right, so I imagine this is where things get kind of sticky, because, I mean, didn't you mention some GQ article or something like that that came out back in the day? Yeah, yeah, it was called... um was Michael Jackson framed, or also, I think it's also referred to as Did Michael Do It by this writer, Mary Fisher, um, in October 1994. It's kind of the holy grail of articles that the Chandler allegations were all a big hoax. Fisher wrote that Jordy Chandler was given sodium amytal, a drug erroneously called a truth serum. It may, according to some medical professionals, make patients susceptible to false memories. And somebody gave it to Jordy? Uh, According to Mary Fisher, somebody did. Mary Fisher writes, in the presence of Dr. Chandler and a dental anesthesiologist, quote, the boy was administered the controversial drug sodium amytal, end quote. The anesthesiologist may have given Jordy Robinol and Vistaril in addition to sodium amytal. Robinol is given preoperative to reduce the production of saliva, and Vistaril is an antihistamine which is used to make people more relaxed and or sleepy before surgery. But neither would be given solely for anesthesia. But Diane Diamond's reporting in her book casts some doubt on that. She writes that the anesthesiologist's records from that day state that the boy was given a combination of Robinol and Vistaril, but there was no reference in his records to sodium amytal. Okay, I see. But the Mary Fisher article from GQ kind of asserts the theory that the molestation story was planted in Jordy's mind by his dad. And that article, in theory, has kind of become this cornerstone of evidence for pro-Jackson fans and on pro-Jackson websites I've gone through in researching this story. I brought up the false memory concept with former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. If, in fact, that was true and uh, that he had administered uh, some kind of uh, drug 
in order to have his son uh, relax and disclose. Uh, that would have been one of the problems that we would have faced in the case because uh, there's case law on, on hypnosis where if someone undergoes hypnosis, which is very different uh, than the situation we were facing, so it would have been a new it would have been a new area of law, most likely, uh, if in fact that happened. But if you're under hypnosis, you are so uh, open to suggestion that it can destroy uh, a witness's credibility, and there, you know, the witness may or may not be allowed to testify, depending on whether there's statements before the hypnosis, and uh, so there's and corroboration. So. Uh, that would have been one of the problematic things in this case. Uh, but knowing that, and knowing that that was perhaps the situation, uh, that was not going to stop our investigation. We were going to try to uh, corroborate as much uh, of what we heard from the child and other witnesses as possible. And so uh, that was problematic, but it would not have derailed the investigation. The procedure of taking out Jordy's last baby tooth, which had been causing another adult tooth to grow in crooked, took only a few minutes. According to the Chandler log, as published in Diamond's book, this is what Evan wrote happened next. When Jordy came out of the sedation, I asked him to tell me about Michael and him. I falsely told him that I had bugged his bedroom and I knew everything anyway and that I just wanted to hear it from him. I told him not to be embarrassed. I know about the kissing and the jerking off and the blowjobs. This isn't about me finding anything out. It's about lying. If you lie, then I'm going to take Jackson down. I'm going to make it very easy for you. I'm going to ask you one question. All you have to do is say yes or no. Jordy spoke his first words. Promise? I said, Jord, did I ever lie to you in your whole life? He said no. I said, well, I never will. He said, you won't hurt Michael, right? I said, I promise. He said, I don't want anyone else ever to know. Promise me you won't ever tell anyone. I promise, I said. So he said, what's the question? I asked, did Michael Jackson ever touch your penis? Unbelievably, he still hesitated. The longest couple of seconds of my life went by, and then finally, he answered in an almost inaudible whisper, yes. All right, so to convince Jordy to finally tell the truth, his own dad lies to him. I mean, God, that that's awful. I get that. I mean, as a parent, I, I mean, I realize this is not an expose of the Chandler family, but you have to admit it is a strange sequence of questions and answers about parental credibility. On, I mean, on laughing gas, no less, after lying to his own son. This, it's kind of like baiting this kid into answer and, and running with it. Um, yeah. I mean, it doesn't invalidate the truth, but it's pretty despicable. 
Yeah, to say the least, it's it's not right? great parenting. Yeah, and I mean, I get his back is up against a wall. Um, yeah. So, I mean, after he goes to the police, is what's his next move? Is that his next move? Um, no, not exactly. Reporter Diane Diamond. Instead of going to the police, I will never understand this, Brandon. I, as a mother myself, instead of going to the police, he starts to Evan Chandler starts to negotiate a settlement with the Jackson camp. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ockborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor, Seth Weiss is our recording engineer, and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music. Our cover art is by Jacob Sanders, and you can check out our website at telephonestories.org.